Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 52. The title tonight is God Redeems Jerusalem. God Redeems Jerusalem. Now this chapter is a prophecy about the wonderful condition of the church in the last days, represented by the deliverance of the Jews from Babylon as the Lord delivers his church from, you know, from sin and death. The church called by the names of Zion and Jerusalem is being encouraged here to wake up and to put on strength, clothe herself with strength and beautiful garments, to shake off her dust and her chains of slavery since, again, she should become a pure and separate people. And even even though the Lord's people had been afflicted earlier by the Egyptians and then more recently by the Assyrians, a free redemption is promised to them. And they should expect that redemption because the Lord, you know, the Lord didn't gain anything by their affliction. All right. Instead, his name and honor was disgraced because of their affliction on top of his people's suffering. And it suggested that the knowledge of the Lord should be spread. The good news of peace and salvation. It should be joyfully joyfully announced and that the ministers of the gospel should be in one accord and they should be united in making the gospel known to the world. And the waste places of Jerusalem are called on to rejoice here in chapter 52 because of the restoration of the Jews and the conversion of the Gentiles. And the people of God are called to go out of Babylon. And their departure is directed and given some encouragement. Then the chapter ends with a brief description of Messiah. His humiliation, his exaltation, and his work and his role. And more more details will be given in chapter 53, which should really begin with these verses here in chapter 52. And as we've been going through Isaiah, Isaiah has been giving us a, a... a glimpse, a vague picture of the servant of Jehovah, which is Jesus Christ. But now as we get closer to chapter 53, we're going to see clearly that the servant of Jehovah, Jesus Christ, is our Lord. In chapter 51, verse 17, it's when the alarm went off. Awake, awake. Now, here again, in this chapter, the warning goes off again. And in, chapter, in, in verses 1 through 12, Isaiah continues his discussion about deliverance, and he completes the subject of chapter 51. So let's begin now with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 52. Again, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, because the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion, wake up. Zion is the southeastern part of the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. Sometimes it means the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it means the people of God who are living there or the temple. You know, and it was called the city of God as well. Or I'm sorry, the city of David. The uncircumcised and the unclean that are mentioned here are the godless people. And God says that they will enter your gates no more. Zion is a place in the land of Israel. It's the high point in Jerusalem. And when you read scripture, you'll always notice that they say they go up. They're going up to Jerusalem. Because this is a high point in Jerusalem. 
Again, it was David's favorite place, the city of David. And blessing is going to come to Jerusalem, and it won't be an ugly, desolate place anymore. And Isaiah makes it clear here that it will be beautiful again one day. Why? Because of our Lord's work of redemption. Because Jesus is going to redeem this physical universe. Paul says, which is now groaning and it's struggling together in pain. The whole world will become a beautiful place because of the redemption that we have in Christ. He's going to redeem our bodies. We're going to get new bodies. And when this happens, all creation will be redeemed. So the call here in verse 1 is, is, to, is to attention. Awake, awake. It's a call to attention. It's a call to strength and beauty, separation, purity, and freedom. Attention, Isaiah is saying, get up, get dressed, Jerusalem. Put on all of your strength. Clothe yourself in a way that's fitting for your new glory, the city of the Holy One. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Luke said in Acts 26, 20, repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. You see, because unclean and godless people are not going to enter your gates anymore, Isaiah said. Shake off the dust, stand up, get out of the dust, speaking to Jerusalem, and sit in a place of honor. Take the chains of slavery off of your neck, O captives of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is no longer to be a castaway or prisoner. She's being called to her highest place, to her highest glory as a queen of cities. Her sitting in the dust as a prisoner will be changed to sitting on a throne as a queen. Now, back in these days, prisoners were often tied together by ropes from neck to neck. These ropes are now to be removed from Jerusalem and she won't be a captive queen anymore. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Isaiah makes it clear that God is the sovereign owner of his people. They were sold for nothing. No money was paid for them. So the people still belong to the Lord. The Lord didn't sell them here. He didn't sell them. The people sold themselves into captivity due to their own sins. And this is a sad and really unnecessary thing that people will sell themselves for nothing. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. They were robbed. They were oppressed beyond imagination by the Assyrians. They were uh, mercilessly carried off into exile, went into captivity, all because they sold themselves, how? By their rebellion and disobedience. That's where rebellion and disobedience will lead you, into captivity of some kind. You will be held captive by your rebellion and disobedience to God, your sin. The person who sins always sells himself or herself into bondage. But the rewards of sin turns to dust in the Lord's hands. On the other hand, God's atonement is not a business transaction either. God owes nothing, knows knows no one anything. He he owes nothing to no one and his grace is free to those who is truly repentant. And notice what the Lord said here in verse 3. You shall be redeemed without money. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. That is, means you have not been uh, redeemed uh, from the vain life that we were once living by corruptible things like silver and gold. But you were redeemed 
from that old life with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It speaks of the priceless cost of redemption. You see, you can't be redeemed by yourself. You can't redeem yourself with anything, works or money. You can't buy your redemption. You can't earn your redemption. All of the money in the world could not redeem you from your sins. The psalmist says that in Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8. It says, none of them, speaking of the rich, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. It's costly. And only Jesus Christ could pay that cost, that price. And it shall cease forever. No one can ever pay enough. Jesus paid in full. But we have been redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice who had no spot or blemish. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. God's people went down to Egypt willingly at Pharaoh's request. And their purpose, you know, their purpose was just to go there and stay for a while. And they were to enjoy the privileges of, of visiting Egypt. But then Assyria afflicted Israel. But they didn't have a right to do that. Their oppression was uncalled for. And the reason was because they assumed that they had the right to do so, but they didn't. Verse 5. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Isaiah now compares the affliction of Egypt and Assyria with their present situation. The Lord says, what do I have here now? What do I have to do here with this situation? You would expect the Lord to say, hey, I must deliver my people. And their bondage is not to continue any longer. It's time for them to be delivered. Then he tells about the sad condition that have fallen upon the people. He says, you're now going into Babylonian captivity, but I'm getting nothing for you. You're my people, but they're taking you and I'm getting nothing for it. He says, my people are hauled off again for no reason at all. These tyrants, these oppressors are on the warpath and they're, they're just having a great time every day. They're whooping it up every day. And he says, and my reputation, he says, I'm being blasphemed every day. My reputation is constantly being tarnished you know it's amazing how through our own foolishness and sin we get ourselves in such messes and then because of our own doing and as a result we we make a mess out of things guess what we do we blame god which is a kind of blasphemy you know god why would you do this to me You know, we start blaming God for the problems that we bring upon ourselves because we have been disobedient and we have done foolishly. You see, God has set up certain spiritual laws. He set up certain boundaries for us. And he said, hey, obey these laws and you're going to have a good, prosperous, happy life. Not perfect. It doesn't mean it'll be happy and prosperous all the time. But he told, like he told Joshua, you know, so not let this word depart from your mouth day and night and you shall be successful in all that you do. But you will, you will make a, a much better life for yourself if you obey the laws of God. But if you disobey these laws, you're going to experience pain, hardship, and bondage. You're going to become a slave to those things. 
Somehow we think that God's laws don't apply to us. And, and you know, it, it, they apply to everybody else. So, you know, because I don't think they apply to me, I do things my way. So we go ahead, we rebel against God's laws, we do things our way, and then we start to suffer the unavoidable consequences of breaking God's law. You know, try breaking the law of gravity and see how that works out. We don't dare try. Why? We know what's going to happen. But it's the same thing with God's laws. We break the the laws of God and we're going to reap the consequences and they're not going to be good. Verse 6. Therefore, my people, notice, shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. When Jesus was here over 2,000 years ago, they didn't know him. Because they rejected him. But they're going to know him one day when he comes again. And he's going to say, behold, it is I, the one that you rejected. The world has rejected Jesus and they continue to reject him today. The world doesn't know Christ, but one day they're going to. And he's going to say to that Christ-rejecting world, here I am. But it'll be too late. For all those people, for the multitudes of people who have rejected turning to him. But just like he said, just as sure as he predicted his people's captivity, he predicted their return. And when this happens, God's people will learn my name, he says. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to to Zion, your God reigns. The vision here is of the feet of the one who runs from the scene of battle across mountains to the city waiting for news. That's the picture of these words here. The great message of this runner is salvation. Meaning a victorious deliverance. This is good news or good tidings. And we see the same idea in the New Testament as, you know, it says to tell the good news. The message, your God reigns here, it stands behind all of history. God has reigned since day one. And he will continue to reign through all eternity. Your God reigns stands behind all of history. The Lord controls every power on earth. And at just the right time, the messengers to Zion have shown up with the good news of her deliverance. Now, when he speaks of how beautiful are the feet of those who, you know, uh, go to to, to deliver this good news. He's not literally speaking, again, uh, of somebody's feet. In speaking of the feet, Isaiah means seeing the arrival of the messengers on the mountains of Jerusalem. It's beautiful because it's the news of salvation. And deliverance. He's not literally admiring somebody's feet. He's saying, what a welcome sound. The messenger is bringing this good news. And we rejoice. You know, what is God's good news to sinners? It's peace. And it's happiness. And it's salvation. He says, because your God reigns. And that's how Isaiah sums it all up. Paul interprets the preaching of the gospel in the same way in Romans 10, 15. Paul said, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 8. 
Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. This is welcome news to the watchmen, to those who are on the city walls. Because when the watchmen hear the glad tidings of your God reigns, it says they lift up their voice and they shout together. It says they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. In other words, right in front of their eyes, they see the Lord returning to Jerusalem. Israel, thinking that God has abandoned them, will return to his city, Jerusalem, to reign in peace and good and salvation. Verse 9. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, because the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. So the city breaks out in singing because the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There's a good reason to shout with great joy. Because God has won a great victory. It says here, his holy arm. His holy arm is a picture of his holiness and his strength. He's won the victory in front of all the nations so that all could see and learn that God, the God of Israel is the only true God. And that their idols that they worship are nothing. The whole earth is going to see, will see the salvation of God and that he has accomplished All that he has accomplished. Verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. God had a special word for the priests and the Levites. Who were carrying the sacred vessels of the temple. He said, get out of there. Notice in verse 11. He said, get out, depart, depart. Go out from there. He's telling them, get out of Babylon. Go and purify yourselves. And this is a good command for all of God's servants today. God's people cannot stay the way they are. Think about that. God said that he's changed us. We've become new creatures in Christ. We can't stay the way they are. Israel had to leave Egypt. The captives had to leave Babylon. And God is telling us to run away from every system of false self-salvation. Any system that says you can do it on your own. Any system that says they can save you through rules and rituals. You are to get away from every system that that teaches that. That that does not teach that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the right. And we are to run fast away from every system of false salvation. So you see, we also have to decide and we also have to get moving. You see, God expects us to make a clean break. He expects us to forsake sin in any way of sin because he, God, has something better for us. God has something better for us. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, the word better is found at least 13 times. In the book of Hebrews, speaking of Christ, it says that that he is a better hope. He has a better covenant. He has better promises. God has provided something better for us. And again, 13 times the word better. 
God doesn't call us to withdraw from this world. He doesn't call us to withdraw from society. One of these days, He's going to remove us from this world. He's going to remove us from that society. But until then, we are to preach the gospel. We are to be lights in this darkened world. God does not call us to withdraw from society. He doesn't call us to isolate ourselves. You know, He doesn't call us to separate ourselves. He calls us to separate ourselves from evil. Why? So that people can see a spiritual distinction between the world and the believer in Christ. What does God say? There's evil and there's darkness. You know, and there's light and dark. We are to be the light. There is to be a distinction between us and the darkness of the world. Of those who live in this world, who, who, are, who, who love this world and are part of this world. Listen to what it says over in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Listen to what Paul said. Paul said, when I wrote to you before, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. Because you would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. What I meant was that you are not to associate, notice, with anyone, anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. It says, don't even eat with such people. It isn't my, Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsible, speaking to the church, to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, that is, those who are not believers. But as the scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. And through Christ, he gives his people the new dignity, the new position, the new honor of being in, his, in, in, being in, a, in a priesthood. We are priests and kings. Numbers 150 says, you who carry home the sacred vessels of the Lord. Now, to put it in words, and Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we, we have to be clear in our message and in our influence. We are carrying and holding out a holy thing to the world. God's word, the gospel. Anything about us, Anything about us that might make the victory of God confusing or unattractive, it has to go. You know, claiming we love the word of God and we go to church and we talk about Jesus and how we love the word. And, and, and yet, if people see something in our life that's confusing to them, maybe it's contradictory or it's unattractive. I say how I love the word of God and yet... I live contrary to the word of God in some things or in all ways. That has to stop. That has to go. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 21. We see a great example there. It says, when Isaac grew up, and again from the New Living Translation, when Isaac grew up, and again, Isaac was the work of the spirit. Ishmael was the work of the flesh. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate that occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael... Abraham's son and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son, Isaac. So Ishmael 
and his mom were making fun of Isaac. So Sarah looked at Abraham and demanded, demanded. And that's, that, you know, in, in, the, in, in the New King James, it says said, which sounds pretty generic. But it, it can mean strongly, and it, can, and it mean, can mean demand. And that's what we have to do when the flesh and the spirit do not, cannot mingle together. We have to be strong. We have to demand that, again, that she said that he, she demanded to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. Sarah said, he is not going to share the inheritance with my son. You see, the spirit and the flesh cannot dwell together. She says, I won't have it. Now notice it says, this upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. And when we were looked at what Paul said a little while ago, if anyone is a believer who claims to be, or who claims to be, who is a believer, and is living in sexual sin or any immorality, he says, you're not to even eat with those. And people, well, what if it's my family? Anyone means anyone, as difficult that is. And we see that here. Abraham was upset because this is my son. Ishmael's my son. But the point is being made here is the flesh and the spirit cannot dwell together. It was confusing. It was, it was corrupting. God said to Abraham, do whatever Sarah tells you because Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. You see, the gospel is so beautiful. The word of God is so beautiful that we have no right to contaminate it with anything else. It's pure. It's holy. It's God's word. And we need to purify ourselves from every unclean thing. Later on, we'll hear from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, where he said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. And the prophet John the Baptist, they said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Apostle uh, John said in Revelation 18, 14, come out of her, my people. Jesus said, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive in her plagues. Ungodly places are no place for God's people. Verse 12. For you shall not go, notice, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Isaiah says, but when they leave, he says, they will not leave in a hurry. They will not be running for their lives. When God's people leave, leave Babylon, it says they, they leave it not because they're retreating from Babel, Babylon or sneaking away in the night. So that nobody will see them. They're leaving because they are to take on, take on the character of a deliberate march. Like the exodus from Egypt under divine protection with God's divine presence. It says here in front of them and behind them. You know God's word says he goes before and behind. It says here it goes before and he's the rear guard. Before and rear guard are references to the pillar of cloud and fire that protected Israel when she was fleeing Egypt. It says, because the Lord will go ahead of you and the God of Israel will protect you from behind. He's got you covered. This speaks of safety and it speaks of a sure arrival as long as God is both out in front and he's the rear guard. 
That's why we can't go in front of God and we can't lag behind him. He must lead and he must cover us from behind. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The servant, speaking of Jesus Christ, suffered and he died. But he didn't stay dead for very long. It says here he was exalted and extolled and made very high. Now this could be Ref, uh, this could refer to three consecutive events describing Jesus's resurrection, ascendance, and glorification. Or the three phases here may just be emphasizing the great exaltation of Jesus Christ. It says here that he, to deal prudently. It says in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Deal prudently means to be successful in one's endeavor. In other words, the servant will prosper. You know, what looked like a humiliating defeat to people, to men. And I'm sure that Satan and the demons were dancing in the street thinking, finally, we've gotten rid of him. And the people thought, he's done. He's out of the way. What looked like a humiliating defeat to men, it was a great victory in God's eyes. Jesus told his father in John 17, For I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead. His body was glorified. He ascended to heaven where he sat at the right hand of the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father tonight. He has all authority because all things have been put under his feet. And there's nobody in the universe that's higher than Jesus Christ. As many, will, as many are going to find out and will find out one day, but they're going to find out to their shock. Verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. People would be horrified at Christ's appearance because he would be so disfigured that he would no longer look human. That's what happened to him at the cross. Think about that. When you think about all that Jesus went through physically from the time he was arrested to the end of his crucifixion, it is no wonder that he no longer looked like a man. He no longer looked like a human being. Not only was Jesus' rights, legal rights taken away from him, including the right to a fair trial, but his human rights were taken away from him as well so that he wasn't even treated like a human being, let alone a Jewish citizen. When he was questioned before Annas, Jesus was slapped by an officer. At the hearing before Caiaphas, he was spit on. He was slapped in the face. He was beaten on the head with fists. His beard was plucked out. Pilate scourged him and his, his soldiers beat him. Scourging alone, the, the whipping, the scourging alone was so brutal that prisoners were known to die from the loss of blood, just from the scourging. And Jesus took a whole lot more than the scourging. And they were doing this to the Son of God. So you can be sure that when the sinners were finished with Jesus, he didn't look human. And people were so disgusted that they looked away. What was done to Jesus was what should have been done to every one of us. Jesus was beaten so badly by the Roman soldier, no one was asking, hey, is that the servant of the Lord? 
They were asking, hey, is that a human being? Verse 15 in closing. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. In other words, it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That means nations all over the world will be in awe and they will be, they will be surprised. And kings will be shocked into silence. I mean, they won't have anything to say when they see him. Because what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. And what was unthinkable, they have right there before them. The word translated sprinkle here can be, uh, can be translated startle. But it most likely refers to the ceremonial cleansing that was an important part of the Mosaic sacrificial system. And even though the sprinkling of blood, water, and oil didn't take away men's sins, it made the receiver ceremonially clean and accepted before God. And because of the sacrifice Jesus made of himself, we can tell all the nations, all the world, that forgiveness and redemption are offered free to all those who will receive Christ. Isaiah here, when he speaks of this sprinkling, Isaiah is thinking of what Israelite priests used to do. When a leper was cleansed, a priest would sprinkle blood on him to show that his disease was washed away and he was healthy now and he was ready to be accepted back into the community. And that's what Jesus has done with us, spiritual lepers. And on the Day of Atonement, a priest would would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, making Israel fit for the presence of God. Even the priests themselves had to be sprinkled with the water of purification. But Jesus is both our priest and our sacrifice. And he doesn't need to be cleansed because he was perfect. He was sinless. He was spotless. The sprinkling of his blood is pure enough and more than enough to cleanse all mankind, all nations, many nations. He touches the unwashed the unclean, the outsiders, and Jesus Christ makes them fit for God to be able to stand in the presence of God. This is something new. The servant of the Lord would judge our evil by taking it on himself in his own sufferings. Even we who know the gospel have a tough time understanding all of this, what he did, because it's a work of God and we just can't understand the things of God. But this was the joy that was set before Christ. To cleanse the ones, the very ones who treated him like he was less than human. One single man, one solitary life, abandoned, trampled into the ground under the foot of man, gives us in return a life transforming Purity, holiness. And it's, and it's the only way that spiritual lepers like us are healed. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful work of the servant of Jehovah. We thank you for Christ and his blood that was shed on the cross for us, God. Lord, we are so undeserving. 
Jesus paid the debt he didn't owe because he knew we couldn't pay a debt, the debt that we owed. And so he took it upon himself for us because that's how much he loves us and continues to love us unconditionally. Father, we thank you for giving your son. And we thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father. And we thank the Holy Spirit who dwells in us in the person of Christ. Father, we just thank you so much for all that you've done, for all that you're doing, and all that you're going to do. And Father, we just, words cannot express our gratitude for you, Lord. So may we do it through our love and through our actions, through our words, through our witness and testimony. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just make